Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, from the sidelines of the Halifax International Security Forum in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We've been attending this extraordinary conference over the last couple of days, and it will shape our coverage going into what will be hopefully a great Thanksgiving week. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And don't forget to go to either YouTube or the Halifax International Security Forum website uh, to catch replays uh, of the key public events uh, of this uh, fantastic conference. Uh, It has been a busy week. President Biden signed into law the bipartisan infrastructure measure as his party continues to negotiate their broader $1.8 trillion social spending program. Uh, The president met virtually with his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping. Austria joined the Netherlands in closing its borders as COVID cases surge across Europe uh, and other nations are expected to follow. Another follow-up at Boeing on the 787 jetliner program. China moves to return the 737 MAX to service. Uh, Engine News, Indonesia orders two A400M transports and an update on Egypt's order of Rafale fighters from Dassault Aviation. Uh, And I should point out that sadly to date, The COVID pandemic has killed some 771,000 Americans and 5.1 million worldwide. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Stash Tusa of the independent London research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Ablafi of the Teal Group Consultancy right here in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much indeed, Vago, as always. Great to be here, Vago. Wish I was with you in Halifax. Uh, indeed, I wish uh, I wish all of you uh, all of you guys were. But Richard, you're going to be up in Toronto soon, so you'll be uh, getting to enjoy what uh, the extraordinary Canadian hospitality uh, in in just a little while. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Ron. Just in, you know, I just want to kind of go across the piece uh, with with each of you on uh, what you thought or jumped out at you. I mean, obviously, uh, the market is moving on all sorts of news, and we got a lot of news. We have Dubai Air Show uh, news flow that was shaping it. We have the bipartisan infrastructure measure signed, uh, as well as some very specific news, right? Whether whether on engines uh, and on airlines and across the piece, and certainly concerns about COVID. Uh, certainly are looming large in everybody's mind. Walk us through what some of the drivers on the street were for the aerospace and defense group. Yeah, there was, there was a lot going on this week, right? So just, you know, you know broadly, if you look at a couple of things, uh, I'd say one of the macro factors that was uh, you know, kind of uh, impacting the entire market, um, including uh, A&D stuff, uh, was uh, inflation, right? And uh, I think the, uh, the FT had a nice little graphic out that showed in inflation in pretty much every country in the world. So it's not just a, a U.S. thing, although U.S. politics makes it sound like that sometimes. It's a, it's a global thing. Um, that, that, that being said, uh, this week, you know, we, like you said, we had the Dubai Air Show. There was also the uh, ISTAC conference, the International Society of Transport Air Traders, that was down in uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, and there's news flow out of that. So, you know, just quickly, you know, the quick uh, weekly rundown, if you look at the, the S&P on the week, it was essentially flat. Um, commercial aerospace stocks were largely down. Um, they were doing okay until uh, the, the, the shutdowns in, uh, in Austria uh, hit the news. Uh, so Friday was a pretty, pretty um, um, you know, dark day for commercial aerospace. Then on top of that, 
uh, the news flow broke on Friday about the additional uh, issues on, on the 787. Uh, 787 came up in, in full circle uh, earlier in the week uh, at the uh, international ISTAT. Uh, be it that uh, you, you heard from you know, several different of the lessors at the conference that you know they're supposed to take some 787s and they're not going to. Uh, and it seems to have you know, degraded in the story of like manana, manana, manana. Uh, there was going to be in August and then September. And then you know, anyway, um, I think now the 787 delays are pushing 13 months. That means pretty much everything that's been built and then a big tail behind it's all going to be late. And that has all kinds of implications for pricing on those aircraft and other things. So I'm certain we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. podcast. Uh, and then finally, uh, interest rates, one of the things we're you know, always keeping an eye on, um, you know, they're still kind of at the higher end of this range. They've been in uh, at uh, just under uh, 1.6% on the 10-year. Uh, my guess is you'll see the 10-year continue to climb. Um, I'm not an interest rate strategist, but that's just my opinion. So why don't I leave it there and then we can move on. Um, and uh, certainly want to come back uh, and talk about it. And for those in the audience who don't know what ISTAT is, it's the International Society of Air Transport Aircraft uh, Trading, uh, obviously, because that's where the leasing industry is. Uh, Sash, I'm, I'm going to come to you. Obviously, there's some MTU news and some jetliner news, right? As we were preparing for this, you observed that Airbus, uh, you know, outgunned Boeing four to one in uh, Dubai in terms of orders. Uh, you know, perhaps underscoring some some of the concerns that we've been talking on this program. But the but the biggest headline news is Austria, a very consequential European country, large country, is uh, is locking down, joining the Netherlands. And there's this sense that other Germ uh, European companies uh, countries will follow. There's a lot of concern about whether Germany, what what is a popular Christmas time destination, holiday destination for people, might be uh, in next. Sort of walk us through the news flow. Uh, you know, over the week from a European perspective and, and what it all means and, and what we should expect to come. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think, you know, um, Richard will almost certainly want to come back with some more colour on Dubai, but this should have been a week, and it was a week that started off very, very strongly for civil aerospace. The Dubai Air Show, I mean, I think I said last week, Dubai is normally wide-body country, so are we going to see any orders? Well, yeah, we saw orders. We saw over 500, and of interest... The, it was four to one in Airbus's favour. And that's very odd because Airbus, after all, is pretty much sold out through 2025, particularly on the A321 uh, Neo uh, line, um, but you know, more broadly on the, you know, the entire A320 family. So anybody ordering an A320 now is saying, I want this post-2025, but I really want this rather than 737 Max, which I can get you know, as an airline, probably four years sooner. Uh, so this is a very, very strong statement by the market. Um, Airbus also sold some uh, some A220s, which is welcome because A220 is just not getting towards break even anytime fast at the moment. Uh, and they really do need to get volume up. Um, and they actually got the first launch customers for the A350 freighter. So that should have been a really strong start to the week. And yet the week ended down and badly. And that was the effect that Ron's mentioned of, of lockdowns and lockdowns starting in Austria. Uh, but also there are now, you know, riots and almost certainly lockdowns going to occur in the Netherlands. Uh, Germany looks like it's going to go into various forms of lockdown. Initially, anybody who's not vaccinated is locked down. But um, you know, the virus is pretty out of control in German-speaking Europe at the moment, or German and near-German uh, for our Dutch colleagues. Um, and that's, a, uh, that's really, really worrying because it means that some holiday traffic, uh, and you 
correctly identified, you know, Austria has a very, very strong winter sports season. Um, holiday traffic starts to be affected. This may well spill over into Switzerland as well. And it, it means that at the very least, the, the European aspect of the global air transport recovery has just been dealt a, um, a, a another blow. And I think the question is going to be how many countries actually manage not to go into lockdown over the next uh, two, three months or so. This was exactly the time last year that we saw politicians say, oh, no, there won't be any lockdown. And, you know, three, four, five weeks later, uh, we were all in lockdown again. It, we hope, and I think there is some evidence that, that you know the vaccine and particularly the, the booster uh, courses of the vaccine are working pretty well. They seem to be. I'm touching a lot of wood now in the UK, uh, but it, it's it, it's just feeling a lot less certain even than it was uh, two weeks ago. Elsewhere, I mean, I think what was really interesting on the civil side was that MTU Aero Engines, which you know has got a very, very strong business as a, a supplier of, of, of major subsystems uh, and, and sections, predominantly to Pratt & Whitney and General Electric, but is also the world's number one, number two independent MRO uh, business. So a really strong engine repair and overhaul company. They had an investor day. Their, their guidance for the next uh, one, two, three years looks pretty strong, but they were very clear that the Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan has fundamentally changed the economics of repair and overhaul. And their repair and overhaul margins, which used to be eight to 9%, with the, with the geared turbofan taking probably 40% of all the volume now and eventually rising to probably 60%, margins are going to be five to 6%. Because if you're part of the Pratt & geared turbofan uh, agreement, you make virtually no money on the repair and overhaul, but you make your money some other time on uh, the on supply of spares and so forth. It's a very, very different economic basis for this uh, engine than any other that I've seen so far. Um, and MTU, you know, they shares were down 10% last week. Half was the Friday effect, the uh, lockdowns, but half were just realization that their biggest single division, MRO, just ain't going to make as much money as people expected. Uh, Richard, any change to your bullish forecast? I hate to sound like a naysayer. It's not. I'm not rooting against you, uh, but my cynical tendencies and you know are are getting are getting the best of me. Where are we? Where are we going? And what does it mean? Right. I mean, Ron said Friday was a bit of a bloodbath day. There was some Boeing news flow on that as well. But the commercial group, uh, you know, being driven by COVID. Where where are we? Where are we going? Well, uh, I have acquired a ever so slight facial tick, uh, but <laughs> other than that, I'm um, I'm maintaining a certain degree of hope. You know, we said it constantly: the the disease gets a vote here, and clearly there are issues with that. All of our assumptions about percentages in terms of vaccination rates, herd immunity, all that other stuff, um, it, it things are not absolutely uniformly perfect. The only thing I can tell you is I have a great deal of hope with the new drugs that are post-infection therapeutic drugs. And my fervent hope here is that, you know, the efficacy rates here concern keeping people from death. And assuming these can be distributed quickly, then we will transition, I hope, to more of a disease management phase. Uh, and you'll start to see death rates come down markedly as people learn and have the capability of treating infections and keeping people from dying. And it'll seem more like flu season rather than global pandemic and lockdowns. This is my fervent hope. Obviously, yet again, the disease gets a vote here too. 
Um, as I said, yeah, bit of a bit of a bloodbath. You know, I think the most interesting aspect of the Dubai order patterns were that the airlines are maybe it's groupthink, but they're behaving exactly as experts like us have been saying they would, which is to say they are looking at what their options are for replacing larger jets with smaller ones whenever you can get a smaller jet that has the same or better economics, the same or better range, you go with that. Small is beautiful. And it just happens that Airbus has two great jets that do that, the 321neo replacing twin aisles, the 220 replacing larger single aisles. Um, and order patterns reflect this preference. It, in other words, the strategy is exactly conforming to theory. This is a real problem for Boeing, a very big problem. And yet again, Boeing seems to be content to simply lie down and do exactly nothing. Now, remember, it has been, uh, I believe, 18 years since they launched a clean sheet jet, the 787. That is an extraordinarily long time in Boeing history, no matter what's happening on the market. But you couple that with a bloodbath on the market, you couple it with the aborted NMA launch or near launch back in the last decade, you just have to wonder, like, <laughs> what is the plan here, people? Because the market is speaking very eloquently. Steve Udvarhazi this week came out and said, well, what we've all been saying, and I'm sure he said it before, Boeing really needs a new large single aisle. It, this is not rocket science. It really isn't jetliner science, but it, it has to happen unless, of course, it doesn't. The freighter order was very interesting. I expect they'll catch up with the 777XF, but I also can't help but wonder now that 777-300ER conversions are extremely, well, popular um, and obviously cheap feedstock because there are a lot of 777-300ERs that will come on the market. I can't help but wonder if that's the, the fundamental problem with getting a 777-XF launch going. And there have been precious few jetliners, perhaps none, that have arrived out of the box, both in cargo and packs configurations. So we might have to wait a little longer than they'd like for more than a token number of 777XF orders, or maybe the whole thing will have to wait a few years. So not a great week for Boeing, not a great week for the broader market. Um, darkest before the dawn, perhaps? I, I want to get to Boeing's challenges uh, in a minute, but particularly, uh, Richard, I want to get your sense because we didn't talk about this uh, last week, was uh, Boeing's freighter strategy in taking this work that's being done by other companies, companies in Singapore and Israel, for example, and doing that freighter work themselves. Richard, do you want to quickly recap the audience and what do you think about it? Well, you know, I mean, I understand the urge to manage the market you know, on your own terms and bring more work in-house, that makes a great deal of sense, especially if uh, they believe, as I think many people do, that the improved cargo market, the accelerated cargo market is here to stay for a variety of, uh, of, of, of secular reasons. I, I understand that completely. But of course, it, <laughs> as any other form, it's, it's essentially a, a cousin of vertical integration, I suppose, uh, maybe perhaps a bit downstream. But, you know, that adds an element of risk. You know, you're, you're bringing that capacity in-house. And if the market materializes, you harvest those profits in the business and you manage your feedstock, which is very important. But of course, uh, if things don't work out as planned, then you're left with a bunch of, uh, well, overhead, fixed costs, and that's not good. Uh, but I understand the impulse now. If I, if, if I were a betting man, I would probably say, you know, the cargo market is probably going to enjoy a bunch of good years to come. 
Ron, let me uh, bring you in and ask you about the 787 problems. Tell the audience where we stand on it and what the new hiccup is, because the program has suffered a whole series of challenges. I mean, in, indeed, uh, throughout its history, it, it has faced challenges as much of a game-changing airplane as it is. Sometimes game change is problematic, especially depending on how you execute it. Yeah, yeah, my sense on this, Vago, is, is a couple things. Um, I don't think it's any one issue. Uh, uh, there was a pretty good uh, discussion on this, I think, in the Wall Street Journal. You know, first it was about some interconnects, and then it was some issues around windows, um, shimming uh, uh, on the skins, and now they pointed to something around doors. I, I think it has to do with just you know, it. You know, Boeing is is you know after the uh, the whole seven three seven thing, um, they're reevaluating processes and looking at at how they're doing things. And my sense is they're they're finding a lot, uh, and and what's I think made this frustrating for the 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 user community, if you will, the, the lessors and the airlines who want the product, is they keep finding different things. And I don't know if it's some sort of internal you know, whistleblowing process that somebody says, "Hey, look, you know, that's not quite the way it should be," and then you have to dig down on it. Um, but it it that's my sense is they just keep finding more in the process. Uh, and then you just really do have to wonder is, all right, well, for all the aircraft that were delivered, I mean, they're probably subject to some of these issues. So uh, it, it suggests that there's going to be some sort of you know, monster D-check coming along at some point here for, for the fleet. And, and the part that really makes you scratch your mind is, you know, we're you know, a thousand airplanes deep in this program, right? So this, this shouldn't really be happening now, right? So that, that's the frustrating part. And, and I think like, like um, uh, Mr. Hazy from uh, Airlease, uh, said it's just it's frustrating for a company like them and just a case in point i mean they were supposed to get 11 787s this year that they were supposed to deploy to airlines that for them is about a billion and a half dollars of capital that they would deploy that's their business model and they can't do it so it's really having a material impact on their business and just you know just like everybody else right that's just a, an easy case in point um so it's it's got an impact and then with all these aircraft being late uh you know you you get past that you know, material adverse change time period where airlines can just walk away. So now you have a bunch of airplanes that are built, a bunch of airplanes are going to be delivered late where airlines can come back and leasing companies, whoever, and, and walk away or just negotiate lower prices. So you've got a whole backlog of 737s that are uh, at negotiated lower, lower prices and the same thing's going to happen on the 787. Um, so it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's mind numbing. Uh, one comment I would say just quickly on, on, the, on the Airbus freighter, uh, you know, the, you know, the 777 is a, is a well-liked airplane. Uh, the 777 freighter has been well-liked. It really didn't have any competition. Uh, I think one of the things that Airbus did here, and, and I'd be interested to hear what Sash has to say on this, is they, they, they looked at, you know, one of the comments I heard from an Airbus executive years ago was, you know, Boeing always had a freighter in the mix from the beginning of the program. It wasn't an afterthought at the end. Well, on A350, Airbus did the same thing. So they had this freighter. Um, that has been kind of in in concept since the beginning of the A350 program, and it's got some neat attributes to it. It has a tail door, right? So it and, and I think that's pretty you know important because as the 747s phase out, one of the nice things about the 747 freighter is it had a nose door. Um, this aircraft will have a tail door. It'll be the only one kind of it'll be the only one like that. Period. Full stop. Um, so. Uh, a, a well thought out freighter in that segment of the market will bring competition to uh, the 777F. And, uh, and, and, and what I'd say here just broadly, just kind of a last comment, 
um, Airbus has been reacting to their competitor and learning and doing things. And it's this is where you'd hope that Boeing would see, oh, wow, you know, that A321 uh, LR and XLR, I mean, there really is something going on there. We, we should do something and react to our competitor. And they just don't seem to be. Uh, it it, it uh, uh, certainly is, you know, part, part of the broad frustration I think we've been expressing on this program for uh, for some time. Sash, I know your hands up, but give me a moment for another mention of our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, I mean, I, I, very interesting point that Ron was making there. Um, I, you know, with the exception of, of and I, I'm hesitant to say, to say this because it will just send Richard into entirely deserved hysterics, but with the exception of the uh, A380, um, this is the first Airbus aircraft where they thought of the freighter derivative, the freighter version, uh, absolutely from the get-go. I'm still very surprised with this aircraft, quite how elaborate the uh, A350 freighter is. Um, they've read, they're doing an enormous engineering job here. I think that's good because I think that means this will be a good aircraft, whereas the A330 freighter, in commercial terms, was a dog. Uh, but I don't think, you know, tail door, um, uh, effectively cleaning up the aerodynamics, a different fuselage configuration pretty much altogether. This is a multi-billion euro uh, project. Uh, and so this is not just a, a simple, oh, let's put a freight door in it and, uh, you know, uh, put it out to the market. This is going to be a very, very complex, you know, very complex piece of engineering for Airbus. But of course, Airbus has got the engineering um, uh, capacity because this starts just as the A321 XLR is winding down. So in that respect, it's a lovely way to maintain uh, the engineering uh, workflow, which is one of the marks of a, you know, a company that's, that's functioning well at the moment. Uh, and, and indeed, right. I mean, in re response to the criticism uh, that that we uh, have been um, concerned, we've been expressing uh, for for Boeing. Uh, Richard, um, I want to uh, move on. Right, China is moving to return the seven thirty seven uh, to service. Um, what's what's your sense on what that means? Right. I mean, sort of fill us in on the details uh, aside from what the headline news is, because China has been inching toward this for some time but it doesn't appear to be in any rush uh, either. Yeah, it, it, it really doesn't. <laughs> you know, and I think the, the one big thing that I would urge people to keep in mind when they look at the China recertification issue for the MAX is that it's, there's no evidence they need this, these planes. I mean, the, you had a problem with China's jetliner market, its air travel market that pre-exists, if that's the word, the pandemic. Uh, we had that massive slowdown in 2019 not in 2020. And it's increasingly obvious that it's correlated with a Chinese Communist Party emphasis on returning the country to uh, basically Maoist values. Uh, that's, there's no way you're not going to have an impact on consumer spending in all sorts, especially travel, something that's seen as uh, perhaps a bit uh, wealthy or bourgeois or whatever. And that's going to continue. And they've got a fleet of 4,000 or so jets that's geared for continued growth. They can coast a couple of years, especially since they're committed to taking, oh, 70, 80, or 90, 320s off of Tianjin. And of course, they have their own indigenous programs that have their own issues. But it's not like they've got a capacity problem that they're so eager to get these maxes. So I think anyone's expectations that China research coupled with a trade deal um, would produce a large number of orders that would save the day 
those hopes are gone. Forget it. It's just not happening. And unlike every other downturn or market hiccup that we've seen over the past couple of decades, this one is different because the Chinese are no longer a growth market. They might even be a shrinking market. This is a major area of concern. Sash, why don't you uh, lead us off uh, with uh, some uh, of the news uh, on the military front as we go to the military portion of this conversation. Um, Bring us up to speed. Indonesia ordered two A400Ms, so that's sort of seen as a little bit of a gateway drug. Uh, Whoever whoever gets that kind of great transport capability has a tendency of wanting a little bit more of it. Uh, We've got Rafal news walk us uh, through. Oh, and we have news uh, in Dubai as well on the KC-30, right? So walk us through those three storylines. Yeah, I'll, I'll start on the first two. Um, as you said, Indonesia orders two A400Ms. A400M, I, you know, I think it's a fantastic military capability, but it has always appeared to be very, very expensive for an export customer, particularly at a time when Lockheed Martin is selling C- uh, C-130Js so far down the learning curve that they, you know, they they can price them very, very attractively. But I, you know, I do think that, as I say, once once an Air Force gets A400Ms, they're likely to come back and buy more for as long as the production line stays open. And it's keeping the production line open that's the challenge for Airbus. They've probably got at current rates four, possibly five years of production. Um, the nice thing about this Indonesian order, it's a new customer, uh, and so there will probably be another two, four, six, eight, what, 10 uh, over, over the, the, uh, the coming five, five, eight years or so. The other interesting thing is that they're the first um, customer to buy from the get-go the aircraft in a, uh, a, a tanker as, um, or a passenger slash or freight uh, slash tanker configuration. A400Ms all come plumbed uh, for uh, air-to-air refueling, but not all air forces have got that capability or intends to have that capability, certainly among the initial groups. Um, but Indonesia actually wants the tanking capability first and probably the freight uh, capability uh, second. Um, and I think that's quite a, uh, an interesting indication that the A400M uh, has become mature enough that uh, an export customer can have a relatively high degree of confidence that you know they ask for a tanker and they'll, they'll, they'll get a tanker um, functioning in a reasonable period of time. Um, and I think you know uh, we may see more A400M orders over the over the coming year or so. I think they'll all be initially twos, threes or so, which doesn't sound terribly attractive. But your description of, it, of this as being a gateway drug, I fear, is probably rather accurate. Um, Rafale for Egypt. Egypt is becoming the second largest customer for Rafale now. Only. 57 aircraft in total, uh, but still, uh, conclusions there. Um, first of all, Egypt used to be an incredibly big uh, operator of F- F-16s, and there's a bit of a feeling that F-16 is just being squeezed out, uh, and that as aircraft age, they're, they're being replaced by Rafales rather than by more modern F-16s or F-35s. Um, the second issue with this is, Actually, Egypt ordered these aircraft, oh, good six months ago. But um, Dassault are pretty careful about not putting an order into their order book until they've actually uh, received the down payment associated with getting the production line going again. And when they receive that down payment, it then flows a a big proportion of it through the French supplier system. So uh, not only has Dassault received a large amount of money, I suspect a four-digit sum, but 
half of that broadly will go to Talis and Safran, the two um, major subcontractors for uh, Rafale. Um, so I think that means all three com uh, companies going to end the year with a, a good boost to their orders, but also a very good boost to their balance sheets. And I should point out, uh, when Sash says a four-digit sum, you mean billions of dollars, uh, not uh, a couple of thousand uh, uh, yeah, dollars. Yeah, sorry. I I, I, it's, it's, it's important to point that out, point that out to the audience. Uh, <laughs> yes. Right. High-end French technology does not uh, come cheap. Um, Richard, uh, your, your take on those announcements and what do you think they mean from a market impact standpoint? Uh, and talk to us a little bit about the F-16 news flow on the week uh, as well from Lockheed Martin. You know, I'm afraid I don't quite share the same level of optimism on the 400M in the transport market. A couple of things, you know, Malaysia got their small number of 400Ms a bunch of years ago and shown no signs of getting more. Second, you have that Indonesian strategy of, I, I don't know, every so often they go shopping. It's far rarer for them to actually pull the trigger and, and buy something. Matter of fact, this this could easily be the first new build Western aircraft they've ever purchased. I, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of others. They operate used A4s and F-16s and, and God knows what else. I mean, I guess the only thing they've gotten that's really new is their the, the C-235s that they've been co-producing over what used to be their you know, aerospace company, IPTN. I, uh, I, I'm not optimistic. I, you know, I remember doing a study with my, my colleagues uh, for um, well, I guess it was the DGAC back about 25 years ago on the A400M and FLA as it was back then, of course, or FEMA, I think. And um, Indonesia was like the very top of the list. This is absolutely a slam dunk. Well, here we are 25 years later. I'm not so sure about this. And also, you know, the market, it just stinks. Yes, the C-130J is still there, um, but, it, you know, it's 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 kind of running low in terms of numbers and of course it's you know it it's been around 20 or so per year for some time uh also this week Embraer announced that the, uh, the Brazilian Air Force was reconfiguring its orders basically cutting from 28 KC 390s to just either 21 or 15 depending upon who you believe Embraer has vowed to pursue legal remedies etc cetera, etc cetera. but this is a really flimsy market Period. So I, I'm a little, I'm a little uncertain. And other news, as as you mentioned, the uh, the F-16 announcement looks like it's a year delay. It could be, um, you know, I think not till late and, next and year. Till and tell the audience what delays that we're uh, talking about, right? I mean, because some people will be going like, wait a minute, they, you know, they've built like five thousand of these jets. What's the delay, right? So talk to us a little bit about the nature. Sure. of Sure. Sure. Basically, there was a bit of a crunch break, you know, with the F-16 line moving from Texas to Greenville, South Carolina, obviously a bit of an order drought. And then all of a sudden orders came roaring back, uh, you know, Bahrain, Croatia and most of all Taiwan with probably more to come. Morocco also added to that. So really strong order activity. But in, in the history of lines that are successfully moved and, and you know, volume production instantly happens, that not a very long and successful history there. So about a year delay, um, possibly more to come. We still have in the background the inexplicable limit of F-35 output at 156, even though the market would seem to warrant a higher production rate. How much of this is supply chain? How much of this is workforce? How much of this is just random logistical snafus? I, I, I really don't know, but it's clearly an issue here for them. Uh, and then last, 
there was the UAE KC-30 order, which was just for a couple of planes, but it's noteworthy because a few years ago, the UAE had put in a request for approval of KC-46s on top of the KC-30s they already had. So it's very unlikely they would order an incrementally greater number of KC-30s and still stick with the 46s. So you've got the export market for tankers increasingly dominated by Airbus. The only people getting KC-46s appear to be, well, Israel and Japan. Um, Ron, you want to uh, add uh, anything uh, to the discussion? And why don't you wrap us up on uh, concerns about uh, the, the prospects for a full year continuing resolution, right? I mean, as we go through this process, it's great. We've got an infrastructure measure. Looks like we might have a broader uh, social uh, spending package, right? The infrastructure was $1.2 trillion. Um, and, you know, but we're having a little bit of a challenge and an inability to get the defense budget through, and hence the concerns that we will be in a full year CR as we are now. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I think that you know the fear is that I guess the can you just call the Republican caucus just going to dig their feet in, um, and you know try to take a position that they think that could potentially put the administration uh, on a weak footing going into the elections next year. Um, so there's there is a fear uh, in the defense community that you could see a full year CR. Um, you know, broader than that, I don't have a heck of a lot of insight in it, but. Um, it would be um, reasonably disruptive. If you look at kind of previous CRs, they're not usually immediately disruptive, but you feel the effect, um, call it 9, 12, 18 months down the road, because things kind of get that sequence. Uh, but that, that, that for sure is one of the fears. On, on the um, uh, military transport market, yeah, I don't have a heck of a lot to add other than um, Embraer, who I'd spoke to after that happened, was clearly bent out of shape by this, right? So um, kind of uncharacteristically. Uh, they're going to try to uh, pursue what avenues they can with the Brazilian government. Uh, it's, uh, I think it came as a surprise to them. So, uh, for what it's worth, Sash, you've got one last point you want to add before we part for the week. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it's just been on the the rising, falling, but still very, very high levels of tension uh, over Ukraine and Russia, and the degree to which some European countries are being dragged into tensions on the eastern border in a very, very broad sense, to a much greater degree than I think they expected uh, a month ago, and to a much greater degree than they have been postured for in terms of their broader military strategy. I mean, the, you know, the, the very ex- interesting example this week, uh, the British Army has got you know, a, a small, a company group of combat engineers uh, on the Polish-Belarusian border. That doesn't sound terribly exciting, but this is not a place that the British Army normally has an active deployment. What's been fascinating, what, looking at social media on this, is that suddenly the British Army is taking this very, very seriously. So rather than having the usual thing, and you know, all armies wear lots of badges because we'd like wearing badges to, to tell people who we are and how proud we are of what we are, etc. So, you know, there's normally quite a lot of colour on most people's, um, uh, you know, upper arms and shoulders and everything else. All of the pictures of the British Army this week, they've taken all of their combat insignia off. They've, uh, you know, they're wearing... Uh, uh, face coverings um, for all sorts of good reasons. But this is, you know, showing that there's a starting to be a concern about the degree to which the the opponents, let's call them, uh, you know, 
term for the Russians, would learn a, a lot of interesting stuff from social media if we weren't very, very careful. I've never seen this done before. We didn't do this in Afghanistan. Afghanistan, you know, we had loads of tactical recognition flashes all over the place because we didn't terribly care about what our opponent might learn from us. But the tensions with Russia are so high that we're starting to look at operational security of a level that is very, very unusual. I'll, I'll leave yeah. it that. And, and uh, I thought it was interesting that you were going to use the term balaclava, but you didn't. I just stopped myself in time. Exactly. And I took the step. Everybody, thanks very, very much for uh, joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Hope you all have uh, a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Vargo. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vargo. Thank you. Thanks very much, Vargo. Enjoy a Nova Scotia lobster for me. Uh, it, it absolutely is. This is this is a jewel of a conference. Uh, everybody in Nova Scotia has been extraordinarily hospitable, uh, and and the organizers have done a terrific job. And the panels, and the panelists, and the speakers, uh, and the reporters covering it. It's just been a terrific learning environment, as it always is up here. So it's always an honor. Uh, and I, I strongly recommend to the audience catch as much uh, as much of this program as you can, because I'm sure that you'll find it as as interesting. Uh, as, as I do. Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.